You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. I'm Rodney Davis. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Rodney, Caitlin, Towner. It's just the four of us this morning, but a lot to talk about this week. Caitlin, you're very frustrated today. Tell us why you're very frustrated. Well, you know, Florida's really letting me down. Some of Rodney's former uh, Florida delegation colleagues in Congress are really disappointing me this week. I'm just getting really nervous about the 2024 presidential election and the feasibility of someone emerging as a front runner to beat Donald J. Trump in that primary. And it's been a frustrating week. Every morning I wake up and I see more congressional Florida and outside of Florida House members endorsing Trump for president. And it's it's frustrating well, me. Is that uh, their fault or is that Ron DeSantis's fault? That's a great question. And look, Howard, you, I will, I will take my hat off to you. You have been saying this for months now. You know, while a lot of people appreciate and support Ron DeSantis and the the role he's played and, and the great governor that he's been for Florida, you've said, you know, is he ready for prime time? Is he, you know, is he the Scott Walker of this cycle? And what we're learning, and and I think, you know, curious Rodney's thoughts as well here, but he's not done what needs to be done and his team has not done what needs to be done to build relationships early with you know some of his former colleagues with members of the Florida delegation some of these stories we've always heard this we've heard recently this national narrative about him being awkward with donors and not really being able to get FaceTime with him unless you're writing you know big six figure political checks and i think you know the uh, that's all really coming home to roost this past week with He's got a serious likability issue. We saw that with him coming to D.C. this week and the embarrassment of of being here in Washington with several members and then having, you know, uh, Lance Gooden, for example, from Texas come out and say, great, great guy, you know, great, great speech, but I'm endorsing Trump. Rodney, you must chime in. Well, I think Towner wanted to talk. Towner, why don't you give your uh, give your <laughs> happy thoughts. to talk? I'd be happy you know, to talk because I'm I'm gonna say a, quite a few things on this issue, but cool. I'd love to love to hear your thoughts, Towner. My thoughts are is you know he has had nothing but disdain for Congress, even when he was in Congress. He just wrote in his book about how much he hated being in Congress and how much he hated other members of Congress for the most part. I you know had the great privilege of being a staffer and a lobbyist and having interactions with him and his office and not one time did i have a positive interaction quite frankly with his office you take meetings in he was completely disinterested the entire time to caitlin's point you would have a situation when he was when he's governor where he doesn't really take a lot of meetings. He's just not a very personable guy at the end of the day, in my estimation. And quite frankly, you can't say you don't care. And then all of a sudden, when the narrative comes around this week that you're getting your tail end kicked because because other folks are lining up because they don't care for you all that much with somebody else, you can't all of a sudden care and feel like you can rebuild those relationships in the matter of 72 hours. It just doesn't work like that. So anyway, those are my two cents. I know Ron DeSantis. Ron and I got elected together, um, one spot ahead of him in freshman seniority because we use alphabetical order for seniority. 
Um, Ron was one of the first people I met when I got to Washington. Um, I had, guess I had, from, from hearing all these stories, I, I guess I had the unique ability to make him laugh. Um, Ron, you know, never treated me that way. Ron actually, uh, at one point, helped me out politically by lighting up the National Park Service director for something that happened in my district during the shutdown of 2013. It was always very friendly with Ron, but it was not usually about issues. It was just us talking and and, and debating. And, and I think another question that has to be asked, and I'd, I'd love to hear everybody's thoughts on this, is, is this, you know, what Ron wrote in his book about disdain for Congress, was that really Ron or was it the folks helping him write the book, his political consultant saying, this is what you need. I mean, my advice to Ron, because he's had a disastrous three weeks and I've been on record publicly defending him. You know, the old adage about, oh, the donors were upset he didn't stay at an event. That that narrative happened years ago while his wife was fighting cancer. Well, you know what? My wife fought cancer years ago and I wasn't elected to anything. I could not imagine being governor and having... To, to figure out a way to get out, get, go do what you need to do, go raise money to get reelected, and then all of a sudden go home and make sure you're a dad. So I, I told a couple of reporters, those donors should just cry me a river, quit whining. But the sheer fact of what we found out now that I've known privately from talking to, to members from Florida is that Ron has not done the basic outreach to just build your own party uh, build your own party friendliness, build your own party rapport. And, and it's public now what I heard privately weeks ago from Greg Stubbe. You know, Greg almost died. He fell off. Congressman from Florida. Yeah, Congressman from Florida. Greg, first guy to ever hit a pitch out of Nat Stadium in a congressional baseball game a few years ago. And I was standing right next to Biden in our dugout when it happened. They all turned and looked. But in the end, Greg told me the first call he got that he can remember getting was from Donald Trump. Donald Trump does retail well. Ron DeSantis does not. And it is a huge message that you have now six, seven Florida Republicans that have endorsed Trump. And only one, and she's great, it's Laurel Lee, the former Secretary of State of Florida, who was appointed by Ron DeSantis. So you don't, you're, you're expecting that. This is a big deal. And unfortunately, Ron's got to decide if he wants his team to focus on fighting the culture wars on Twitter or if they want to lay out a plan. And Jeff Rowe, his, his new consultant, uh, needs to do a better job of getting outside of that culture discussion, getting outside of the things that are going to, to just rile the base and figure out how to actually get Ron to talk to people because it failed miserably to this week, as Caitlin said. And, um, and the Lance Gooden thing, I mean, I know Lance and I would tell Lance to his face. I think he had had that already prepped before he went in, but in the end, it was not a good visit. It was not a good story. And as you said, Tanner, you can't make up for years worth of, lack of interaction in one 45 minute meeting at the heritage foundation where I've, I don't think I've stepped foot in since I was a freshman back in 2013. I think there's also a competency element of the equation because he's been outfoxed by Disney and he took Disney to task over its special task taxing district status. 
but then he's been outfoxed by by Disney with a long term lease. No, Rodney. No, I, I read reports this week that uh, the changes that the Ready Creek District that basically Disney has run and allowed them to be locally governed. The changes they made at the last minute before Ron's new board members came in are null and void because they didn't follow the three-step process to notify all property owners. They did two of the three, but they did not mail a letter. So they have been, they from what I've read, unless something's changed recently, and Towner and Caitlin may know, all those changes are null and void. So DeSantis actually outfoxed Disney. I think that's not necessarily the case. I think the point here is the fact that Disney has fought him back and has at least at the very minimum now drawn it to a draw, has taken it to a draw. The DeSantis, I mean, he might try to do something vindictive, as he said in his press conference the other day with regard to Disney, but Disney's costing him now. It's not a gainer for him anymore. People aren't lining up and supporting his actions against Disney anymore. He's just taking it too far at this point because he thinks that's what he should be doing from a culture war standpoint. And it separates him again from Donald Trump. Sometimes taking the position opposite Donald Trump on an issue is not necessarily the best place to be. Every now and again, Donald Trump actually gets it right on an issue um, and, and can somehow move forward correctly. So, you know, I think the bottom line here is he's trying to, Ron DeSantis right now is trying to fight every culture war at the exact same time. I don't and, understand why he ever took on Disney in the first place. I mean, I I know, yeah, I know what the issue was, but guess who goes to Disney? Guess who goes to Disney World? Yeah. It could be one of the biggest family values places of all time. <laughs> you know, <laughs> right? It's like Trump voters go to Disney World. Yeah, yeah, and they spend tons of money. Yeah, so I, I I don't get it. Color me a skeptic, Caitlin. I don't see it. I think it was a winning it was a winning message when it happened, but to Rodney's point, I think he's taken it, you know, a little a little too far at this point. I, I don't think we have any idea sitting here right now where this Republican field is headed. Yeah, Trump. Right. And Look, obviously, I want it not to be Donald Trump. Anybody who listens to this podcast knows that I'm any I'm I'm on the anybody but Trump bandwagon uh, on the Republicans on any side, frankly, except for Bernie Sanders. But I don't think we have any idea where it's headed. Who knows what the dynamics are when we get into debate season? Who knows what a Tim Scott can do? Who knows what? I don't think anybody thinks Chris Christie's going to be the Republican nominee for president, but could he potentially take down Donald Trump? Yeah, like he's got a lot of vulnerability. Here, here's, and, the here's the problem with that, yeah. though, Howard. I mean, I Mike, the conventional wisdom that I've mentioned on this podcast before is the best thing for Donald Trump is a large Republican primary where he takes out, he sucks up all the oxygen in earned media, and he just goes and takes takes people out surgically one by one, like he did in the last primary. And what Ron DeSantis's failures over the last few weeks have done has empowered many others. Look, you got another friend of mine, Mayor Francis Suarez out of Miami on Fox News last night, basically saying, you know, look, I'm better than Ron DeSantis. I'm not afraid to go take on Donald Trump. I'm not afraid to be a presidential candidate. And, and Francis, to his credit, has been laying the groundwork, coming to places. Uh, he personally 
went to early primary states and did campaign events in Iowa with congressional candidates and members of Congress in New Hampshire and other places where he he believed he had a shot to get known at least and be able to open doors. So a bigger field, I think, guarantees your worst nightmare, which Trump wins. Yeah. Well, then the entire country said, who's Francis Suarez? All the same time. <laughs> and, and, so, and I didn't realize he was running for president. Yeah. Well, he's I mean, not yet, but I'm saying he's I, been I, trying to run for a little while now. So a, it's a mayor yeah. in Florida coming out now only because his governor who won a landslide has faltered. Well, and, you know, the one thing about Francis Suarez here is you notice that none of the South Florida delegation, the Cuban population, has has uh, committed to either Donald Trump or Ron DeSantis yet. And so I think they're all trying to see what the mayor of Miami is going to do. And, you know, I don't think Francis Suarez has a chance in hell, to be honest with you, at the end of the day. But the bottom line is, you know, we're going to start seeing these type like mayoral uh, mayors, we're going to start seeing maybe a governor or two in addition start to jump in. And to Rodney's point, if you can, I mean, if you're looking at Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, for example, who I think are, I think Tim Scott's a very viable candidate. That's who I pr- prefer at this moment. But if you're looking at Nikki Haley or Tim Scott, they're trying to get at least survive the South Carolina primary with a very small field. That's how they have some sort of success possibility. And if we still have a decently large field and Trump is 20 points higher, 30 points higher in Iowa and New Hampshire, moving into South Carolina and and the field is just a, a big jumbled mess still going into South Carolina, I think it's hard to see right now how Donald Trump doesn't get the nomination. Well, if that happens, then that's what the Republican electorate deserves. Yeah. Because yeah. He was a mediocre president, and he did some really. Hey, stop complimenting him, Howard. He <laughs> was a. Uh, I served with the guy. We did a lot of good things together. When you you say he's mediocre, that means you're telling me I was mediocre, and that hurts, Howard. <laughs> <laughs> you're you're slightly above mediocre, Rodney. I promise. <laughs> so no, I this, so I'm there aiming. are there are reports this week that Biden is set to announce as soon as early next week his 2024 campaign. Why Why now? Caitlin, what do you think? Why Why now? Why is Biden coming out now? He needs, well, he needs to. He should have well before this. I think there's there's still been a question in the Democratic field of, of frozenness. That of course, he says he's going to jump in. His wife says he's going to jump in. Everyone says he's going to jump in. So just jump in. Like make the announcement, set up the campaign, move forward. I think he needs to, to, to start yeah. getting the ball rolling in my view. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that far away actually. Right. <laughs> I mean, we're almost halfway through 2023, which is alarming, but it is alarming on multiple levels, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it seems like now's the time I wonder, I've wondered if it, is intentionally to coincide with the debt ceiling battle on some level where Republicans are stepping on each other. Towner, what do you? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. After next week, I'm not sure Republicans are going to be stepping on each other. And Manchin came out and prodded Joe Biden last night. I mean, I think, I I think he's trying not to associate the two probably would be my guess, at least how I think it's going to play out over the next 
six weeks or so. But, you know, I think for Biden, one of the things they're looking at right now is they have a Gavin Newsom problem. And there's a few others that are out there who aren't running as hard as Governor Newsom is. But from a monetary standpoint, they have to start locking up donors. And this is obviously what's playing out on the Republican side as well, is they're locking up big money donors. All these folks are trying to figure out, can they get the resources to run? But, you know, the the Democratic fundraising has not been electric by any stretch of the imagination. And Biden's got to put his fundraising operation back into order uh, if he's going to want to run, because Republicans are at least going to come with a lot of money to the table at the end of the day. You actually think Gavin Newsom is preparing to challenge him? I mean, he's showing up at the White House when he's not there to hold press conferences. I mean, he is I don't think he's going to challenge him. But what I do think is happening is the more folks are essentially soft running to replace him, the the more it looks like he's to the electorate, like he's going to get replaced. Remember, Democratic voters still by a majority don't think Biden should run for another term, even though they support him by 78 percent in the most recent poll yesterday. So he's got to change that narrative quickly because everybody's like, oh, this sweet old guy that's in the White House, you know, okay, time to move along. And he doesn't want to move along and that's fine. But he's got to inform his electorate and start to build a little bit more momentum for his second run. I think he's got a Kamala Harris problem for one thing. Well, yeah. I mean, he's got to then change his vice president too. I mean, I would... He, I don't think he can, but this just sends me down a rabbit hole. Now I got to do research on this all day long. What's the research on all the vice president switches in the history of the United States? Now I'm just counter. Please report on this next week. We would like to report. Yeah, you have have better things. I have a long list of things that you and I have to (laughs) do today. Well, this sends me down a Saturday rabbit hole. (laughs) Poor Aaron. (laughs) She'll hear about all the research too. It's not just poor Aaron for that. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. So Rodney, if you are a CEO sitting in, I don't know, the Midwest somewhere, sitting in Illinois, you're the CEO of a public company sitting in Illinois, and she calls you and says, Rodney, explain to me what your former colleagues are doing on the debt ceiling. No difference. What do you say? I would say it's no different than what's happening or what has happened in the past when you've had divided government. Um, I thought it was a very good strategic move for Kevin McCarthy to go to the New York Stock Exchange and lay out what's happened in the past. I mean, I I didn't know this until I I heard Kevin's speech that Joe Biden voted against raising the debt limit four times. Why? Because he couldn't extract out of the administration what he thought he wanted. Every single debt limit that we raise for a long period of time since I've been in Congress. And those before, I'm sure you could go put in, you could go look at provisions that were added. They are to actually extract what people want to see happen. I mean, I was in a very targeted race when we had the shutdown in 2013. We've had a, we, we had debt limit issues and People would ask me, aren't you for a clean debt limit? I would say, what do you mean by clean? Why don't you define clean? Because if one period or one punctuation changes, then that is not the exact same clean debt limit that got raised the time before. There's always going to be demands. And frankly, after spending trillions of dollars, this is what I tell the CEO, 
after spending trillions of dollars, thus creating the inflationary pressures that I think you and your shareholders are worried about more now, we need to have a goal for fiscal sanity. We need to focus on the economy. But then I would say at the end, turn off CNBC. Don't listen to the doomsday clocks. We're not going to, Congress is not going to allow America to default on its already incurred bills, its debt, and it will be taken care of. Don't get scared. Turner. I mean, it's not looking great right now. To be perfectly honest with you, I mean, we're going to we're going to have a, a really low tax receipt situation coming up, which is I mean, you know, as of Tuesday, we were actual tax day on the 18th. We were 38 percent behind in individual tax receipts and I think it's going to end up somewhere in the 28 to 29 percent uh, behind individual tax receipts of last year. And for those following the debt ceiling. I love following the debt ceiling for the most part. It is like a household income, except for you don't have a credit card anymore. It's money is coming in, money gets paid out. You have bills, you have income. That's that's all it means. So you got to track when is Customs and Border Protection transferring the user fee dollars to the Treasury. So April 18th in this particular year is a big day for figuring out when we're actually going to to go into default uh, because we need to know how much we're getting. It's like we got our Christmas bonus essentially on April 18th and we got to figure out how long we can make that last in paying the mortgage. And so with those receipts being down, the X date is now moved up probably, I think we'll start seeing estimates coming out shortly, probably into the first week or second week of June, which gives us a much shorter ramp. And when you actually think about it, as I said earlier in the podcast, we have about six weeks right now to figure that out, which is not a lot of time. Memorial Day is intervening. Uh, There's a two weeks of house recess in that period of time as well, when members will be out of town. And so I just don't see how they're anywhere close to beginning a conversation on this. And I know that's something McCarthy's trying to jumpstart. And I know that is something that Biden and Schumer, especially and Jeffries are trying to trying to say is not necessary that we just <clears throat> pass a clean debt ceiling. And so this whole process started tremendously early compared to every other time this has happened. The the conversation about it in early January was quite frankly astounding, but it got us no closer. Uh, if anything, it just sowed further division. To me, it started when McCarthy ran for speaker umpteen times or was yeah. voted on for speaker. That was that was the start of the debt ceiling. Yeah. Fight. Absolutely. And we are no closer right now. And neither side is is everybody's saying there won't be a, a breach, but at the same point in time, or there won't be a default, but at the same point in time, there is literally no path that is viable at this moment. Yeah, it's to me, it feels like why okay, Rodney, I accept the notion that at the end of the day they're gonna reach a deal and we're not gonna going to default on our debt. But it's hard to square what Towner's saying with what you're saying and figure out how we get from A to Z. Like at the end of the day, members have to vote. And with the thin majority, this is a matter of individuals and where they're going to vote, no? No, it completely is. And 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 granted, Kevin McCarthy and the Republicans in the House have a very tough job garnering 218 votes with a slim majority that they have, which means 
you have to have, you have to give people what they're asking for. And, and in the end, there's a big difference in how Republicans are treated during these debt limit debates when Democrats are in charge and how Democrats are treated. Uh, Republicans are always the one asked to go and support the Democratic version. There's no discussion in the media. There's no discussion in the echo chambers uh, of, of social media of why are Democrats actually coming to the forefront? I think it was pretty crucial, a point that I think was missed yesterday. Although I do want to say something. I mean, you always mention it took Kevin 15 rounds to get elected speaker. Anybody can do it in one, Howard. Kevin did it 15 times. And I will be honest with you, I think that process helped him prepare for this debt limit fight, which I agree with you began during those 15 rounds. And he knows it's down to a minimal amount of disagreement. And when you look at those who have disagreed, you can knock off some, but I think he gets to 218. I certainly wish Democrats, especially members of the Problem Solvers Caucus, would stand up and say, this is what we need since Kevin introduced his language. We need these changes and we'll be with you, but they're not doing that. But it is interesting, the Problem Solvers agreed on a debt ceiling plan, which I think gives Kevin McCarthy leverage so that Kevin can say, if you don't want this one, Republicans, on our own, then we've got enough Republicans and Democrats that will agree to this more moderate version uh, that has garnered some bipartisan support within a very large caucus. I'm going to do something. And I shouldn't do it, but I'm going to do it. I'll tell you how this is going to go. Because I'll tell you what leadership is thinking right now. And and this is the truth. This is the honest truth that they're thinking right now. We have to hold the hardest line possible with the Freedom Caucus folks until we get as close as possible to default. And enough members of Congress in the conference, including some Freedom Caucus members, finally decide that they've heard from enough folks that they're going to give us a pass and we're going to pass virtually a clean debt limit. Uh, maybe with a couple tiny, tiny, infinitesimally permitting reform sessions from the Democrats. And that's and this is all about self-preservation right now. We're going to walk it up to the line. I'm just not going to do anything except for ask for a negotiation until we get so close to the line that everybody in the Republican conference actually starts to freak out that the dog may have caught the car and enough members peel off that I am guaranteed at least a few more months surviving under the uh, under the the motion to vacate the chair. And that is exactly what's happening right now. But in the meantime, what is going to happen is that our credit rating is going to get downgraded, which is not going to be a fun experience for the United States yet again. It is going to add to the inflationary woes. Uh, that we are facing that are not subsiding right now. And it is going to create an economic situation that is relatively untenable through the summer, fall, and winter of this year. And that's my two cents on this. As well, much as as much as I like to disagree with Towner, I think he's right. I mean, Towner, I mean, how many are you clairvoyant or are you just a man of history? It just happens over and over again. And <laughs> when you and I were there, did yeah. this not happen each and every time? Yeah. So I mean you know, if this were a government funding situation, we'd actually go into a shutdown, which I still think is going to happen in September, by the way. We'd actually go into a shutdown for uh, a period of a couple months until it became untenable enough that members started peeling off and and saying giving Kevin McCarthy cover to, to 
strike some some very small deal uh, to save face. But like that's that's where we're at with debt ceiling. The problem is you can't take it all the way there. And 80 percent of the Republican conference knows that 100 percent of the Democratic conference knows that you can't take it across the breach line, across the default line without extremely serious consequences for the federal government. And, you know, folks are just going to start, everybody's got a lot of backbone right now, but with the X date getting moved up to to early June, probably, uh, you're going to see folks start to peel off. It's going to be a few, a small trickle early on, and then it's going to get much larger as we, as we move towards the end of May. Well, if we were to default or even not default, but go so close to the line that it looks like we might default. The net effect is only to make our borrowing even more expensive than it already is. Absolutely. Which is what you're saying. And, and ironically, we would have to raise the debt ceiling more. (laughs) Right. (laughs) To pay our interest. (laughs) Right. Right. So it's on the, on the flip side, entitlement reform needs to clearly needs to take place. It's the elephant in the room. There's Caitlin, there's every reason to be to be talking about it. It is the primary driver of our fiscal situation. Yeah, not to mention rescinding some of these unspent COVID funds, which is part of the package that Speaker McCarthy, you know, introduced. There's still still a lot of unspent money from some of these big pieces of legislation. COVID's over. Like there are some common sense things in this discussion. And that's why I was pleased to see, you know, Senator Manchin come out last night and say, look, this is a good starting point. Like we've got a problem. Let's talk. But I completely agree with you, Howard. And I'm glad to hear you say that like entitlement reform is completely out of control. We've been spending and spending and spending. And there's recent polling that that says the American people understand this. They, they feel like this is a major problem. The problem is we're entering, as we were discussing earlier, the presidential election season And if anybody does anything that makes it look like they're questioning Social Security or or Medicare delivery, it's that becomes a talking point in in the campaign and you get tagged. And so it's I think that is the principal reason why it it never actually happens. Well, there's been a big conversation about adding, you know, work requirements for some of these programs, whether that's you know, even something like 20 hours a week, or if it's not work, it's volunteering in the community to, you know, things that are tying some type of work or volunteer requirement to receive some of these government programs. And I don't think that that should be some, you know, partisan, um, it, it continues, it continues to be seen as it's like a far right idea when indeed it's, it's very pragmatic solution to help at least get some folks back to work and tie some of these programs to workforce. You know, we'll see what happens. I mean, it's, I think there, there has to be, we have to deal with that. So if it's this debt ceiling fight or the next debt ceiling fight, that has to be dealt with. And hopefully they'll create some sort of commission or some, some sort of bipartisan apparatus to study the problems that we have in that regard and try to begin to address them because we can't, I mean, I was going to say we can't go on like this forever, although actually, you know, we that can. can be canceled and 
<laughs> we can start all over again. So I don't know. I, I don't necessarily think entitlements are a problem, to be perfectly honest. I mean, you're going to have to make some structural changes from basically probably just increasing the age of retirement or increasing uh, the the cap on on uh, on amount of wages that are that are taxed under Social Security. But like at the end of the day, the trust funds exist for a reason. I mean, the the functional financial reforms that existed for Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid exist for a reason. And Medicare on the physician side is budget neutral, for example. Um, you know, you're certainly healthcare costs are going up, but there's literally nothing we can do about any of this because it's all the baby boomers fault and we know it, but we got to get through it as a nation. Like there's literally nothing we can do. We can't just like kill off all the seniors and like solve our, our, our aging problem at the end of the day. It just doesn't work like that. Definitely not if you want to win Florida. Right. Exactly. So, you know, you just need the Cubans to win Florida though, Howard. Um, But at the end of the day, we don't really have an entitlement problem. What we have is an emergency spending problem in Congress. Uh, it's everybody likes to blame mandatory spending. It's not necessarily mandatory spending. If discretionary spending stayed within what our actual receipts were on an annual basis, then we wouldn't nearly have the spending problem that we do. And once every 18 months, we pass a one to $2 trillion random bill and we don't pay for it. And that's what do you mean we don't have an entitlement problem? I mean, I'm saying we have trust social security trust fund is supposed to be bankrupt in in three years. Yeah, that's fine. And we can make slight structural tweaks that will extend that for 80 age much trouble. An an adjustment to the age. I would not call that a straight, a slight structural tweak. Have you ever say that? Have you ever seen the federal government solve a problem three years before it's available to be solved? Never, no. never, not a single time. We will solve that problem in three years. But I will tell you this, we haven't adjusted Social Security in 20 years, and I've been told it's going bankrupt in the next three years for the last 20 years. So it's like one of those things that is just almost a figment of your imagination. Mm-hmm. But the fact that we have the trust fund means that we are not interacting with the dollars there from an external standpoint. The problem is Congress passes $2 trillion bills every 18 months and doesn't pay for the, the, uh, it makes for a really fun lobbying fight Towner. What would we do without those big year end spending bills? Well, How would look, we get anything done? I love the, them as a the French, the French are rioting in the streets because the president of France wants to increase the yeah. age at which you're entitled to pension. Well, Americans, the Americans and the French are are, yeah. are quite different in their work ethic, Howard. <laughs> quite yeah, lazy. Globalist. They're not a superpower anymore. <laughs> I, I'm aware of the French now, aren't we, Howard? Oh, we, <laughs> we, we. Uh, we're getting American fries back now in the house cafeteria. Rodney's going to make me change my name back to Towner Freedom. <laughs> I forgot about that. That is awesome. That's yeah, you're so only good. trying to pander to Towner because of his name, Howard. I know that's, how you operate. That's so good. Hey, can I can I point something out? I thought I thought it was Social Security. It was 2036. It's SSDI. It's the yeah, disability SSD. insurance that's three years away. That's three years away. But you know the irony is, you know, there are some tweaks that 
you don't even think about that can extend the solvency there. But we do have that long-term problem. We've talked about it on here before. And people are sticking their head in the sands. But Paul Ryan was like a savant with this stuff. And he would he would show us graphs nonstop when he was speaker. And, and he would admit, look, the baby boomers are the pig and the python. And in the end, when the baby boomers are no longer on Social Security, it becomes pretty manageable. But you still need to fix the structural issues with the pay-as-you-go system before that. And it's a gamble. And, not, and Towner, you're right. I hate saying that. Nothing will be done until the time comes when it becomes an emergency, a la our last conversation about the debt limit. Yep. Why is that? Why? And, and look, I totally agree with you. But why is it that we can't? We can never get ahead of the curve because need- democracy relies on popularity to get elected, and it's not popular to make hard decisions when you don't have to make hard decisions. Yeah, and that was not me when I was in Congress. No, I clearly always made the hard always decisions. made yes. the hard decisions. <laughs> I never said punt this or punt that. There yeah. was never that. Towner, don't wrap me up. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. Rodney never has uh, you know has always made just hard decisions. Is that? Systemic, like you're saying, is it just a function of democracy, Towner, or huh. is it is it human nature? I, it's I a know. function of democracy. It is. It's been a function of democracy our entire history as a nation, for the most part. And I mean, and especially in the 1900s and the 2000s, it's been a function of democracy. Um, you know, in the late 1700s and 1800s, when nobody knew what the heck government was doing until, you know, three months after they actually did it, it was a lot easier to do things. You essentially had an oligarchy that was running this country because the, there was no ease of communication. And so that was fine. And things moved maybe a little smoother and maybe they did tackle those problems a little sooner. But once everybody knows in real time, and even dating back to the early 1900s when you knew in the paper the la- the next day, you know, once you know in real time what's happening, members of Congress run on popularity. And as a result, they do, n- do not take hard decisions, make hard decisions, unless they absolutely have to, unless the alternative is so much worse. Social Security going bankrupt is the alternative that is so much worse to making the difficult decision to raise the, the age limit. Reagan had to do it. He had to do it because we were about to go bankrupt and they made the change when they when they made it. We don't have to make a change right now. And quite frankly, the SSDI situation, that's what's actually defaulting in the next three years is going to be the biggest issue because that becomes a that is a cultural bedrock disagreement between Republicans and Democrats as to the expansion, the historic astronomical expansion of SSDI over the course of the last um you know 15 years. I guess Systems I'm just broke. I'm just surprised because I thought that members of Congress were courageous forward thinkers. Like me. Yes. Definitely. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean so that's why they got rid of Rodney because he was so courageous <laughs> and forward thinking. They're like, we gotta get this guy out of here. <laughs> who, who is this towner French today? He is he is not he's the, on fire. He's not the same French guy I know. Man, this, this is what the happens. Professor is back. <laughs> Sorry. When, this is what happens when you send the guy on a week of vacation. Yeah. Now I'm just I'm bubbling. <laughs> a week of vacation followed by a week on Capitol Hill. He's all fired up and raring to go this morning. Yeah, he, he hasn't seen me in person through his window that's behind him right now in a no. while. So that, that calms him instead of triggering him. That's right. <laughs> well, 
it's not looking like President DeSantis is going to fix all this. It's looking like it's early. I know. Why are early. you such a globalist? I know it's early. Negative French Macron lover. Uh because of Towner French. <laughs> Towner, um, freedom. Towner, Towner freedom. freedom. Towner Don't freedom. Don't worry, Howard. Congressman Tom Massey has assured everyone that more congressional endorsements for DeSantis are, are coming. That should just make you feel great. Great, 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 great. great. <laughs> I, well, a little inside baseball. Look, I like Chip. I like Thomas. But if those are your first two congressional endorsements, yeah. trust me, that they... The the onslaught of others is not coming soon. <laughs> oh, we'll we'll leave it there. Interesting there times. Go. We're getting back into it. It's election season. The debt ceiling is coming front and center. It's going to be an exciting. It's going to be an exciting rest of the year. And uh, we will be back next week. Towner, Caitlin, Rodney, thanks for joining. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be back. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.